Lord, I thank you for yielding your life and atonement for sin and for opening that life gate that all may go in. So thank you for your perfect redemption that we have seen in the book of Exodus. Thank you that you purchased us by your blood. And Lord, I, sh I just pray that you would show us more of your glory now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I can hardly believe we're here at chapter 40 in Exodus, but here we are. We have learned so much about our wonderful God, Yahweh, the Lord. What a journey it has been. So you have this in your handout. This is a little chart that I put together because I'm such a visual learner. And so I wanted to have some time this morning spent in kind of tying all of Exodus together so you remember what the big picture is. You remember we began way back in Egypt where God's people were enslaved. Do you remember that they were, they were in slavery in Exodus 1 through 4, but God was faithful to his promises, and they were fruitful, and they multiplied, and they filled the land, right? We learned that the Lord God is our redeemer, our rescuer, our savior, our deliverer, we saw the Lord be faithful to his covenant promises, that he's mighty to save, to redeem, and he's so gracious to extend mercy and forgiveness to his stubborn, unfaithful people. How desperately they and we need the grace of the Lord. You remember Exodus 34, verse 6, the way the Lord revealed himself? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So the Lord is passionate to be known and glorified by all the nations. And so the Exodus was for their good, but ultimately, it's for the glory of God. And that's why I titled part two, Our Redeemer's Glory. So we've hiked through some tough wilderness valleys in this journey, haven't we? But here we are at the end at a glory peak, I'm calling it. In the last chapters of the book, we see that the people of Israel have obeyed all the Lord's commands. They've built the tabernacle exactly to his specifications and they're waiting to see the fulfillment of his promise to dwell among them. You remember back in Exodus 29, verse 46, God had promised, he said this, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who what? Who brought them out of the land of Egypt. That was part one. That I might dwell among them. That was part two of Exodus. So the Lord, he desired a relationship with his people. And he had a plan to do that. And ultimately, that plan included Jesus, right? His name, Yeshua, means he will save his people from their sins. 
And his other name that we know from Isaiah is Emmanuel, that means God with us. So even in the name of Jesus, we see part one and part two of Exodus here. Now, before diving into Exodus 40, I wanna do a very quick review of the structure of Exodus and be reminded of the, just the beauty. Now, the book opened with the Israelites in bondage as slaves. Remember that, we've talked about that. But they were building. Do you remember how they were building? They were building for Pharaoh, right? What were they building with? Bricks with no straw, remember? It was ruthlessly hard labor. But the book also ends with building. They're building the tabernacle, the dwelling place for the Lord. And it's gonna be filled with his glory. Now back in Exodus chapters six through 12, we saw the Lord's plan for deliverance. And that included the provision of a lamb, that they would be saved through the blood of the lamb and that pointed to Jesus who is the lamb of God. And in chapters 13 through 18, we saw how the Lord was with them, leading them through the Red Sea with what? His beautiful presence. Okay, he was with them through that. Now, in chapters 19 through 24, they arrived at Mount Sinai, and we saw the, that God gave them the law, made a covenant with them, and we saw God's grace. And then in chapters 25 through 31, Moses is up on the mountain. Remember, they thought he had died, but he was receiving all these instructions for building the dwelling place of the Lord. Now, we encounter two big major events in Exodus that both involve construction. The first one is false worship. That's the horrible incident of idol worship back in Exodus 32. And like the fall back in Genesis 3, this is a very low point in the story of Exodus. They used their gold not to worship the Lamb of God, but to worship a cow that they made. Moses interceded then. You remember how he pleaded with them for more of God's grace. He pleaded with God for more of his grace and his glory. But then, secondly, they construct for true worship. But then according to God's detailed plan, the instructions and the building of the tabernacle now in Exodus 25 through 40. So they were commanded to build not with bricks, but with the best of their gold and their silver and their precious metals. So that's a contrast with what they built for Pharaoh. And then we read that they did it all. It was all accomplished. All right, Exodus 39, 32 says, thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. Do you see that? And the people of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So they did. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses. So the people of Israel had done all the work. And Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. So they had done it. Then Moses blessed them. It was finished. Do you hear echoes of Eden, like Sharice has taught us to look? Okay, do you remember on the seventh day, God finished his work and he rested. Do you also hear echoes of Calvary here? It is finished. Then the Lord spoke to Moses in verses uh, 1 through 15 of chapter 40. He gave explicit instructions, right? These explicit instructions included assembling the tent. Now I got to thinking, do you remember a few weeks back when we looked forward to the transfiguration in the book of Luke and we saw how Jesus met with 
Moses and Elijah. Do you remember that? They had a conversation there. So I got to thinking, what would it look like? What if Jesus walked with Moses as Moses was assembling the tabernacle and pointed out what parts pointed to him? All right, so bear with me, imagination here. But imagine what that conversation would start out like. Well, first, with the assembly of the tent, I think maybe what Moses would say would, or what Jesus would say, is Moses, I am what this tabernacle foreshadows. This is not going to look beautiful on the outside when you finish it. Do you remember what was on the outside? The goat skins and stuff, right? In fact, Moses, when I come to dwell, I will have no form or majesty that people should look at me. I will have no beauty that they should desire me. But when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And next, God tells Moses to arrange everything. He says, first, you shall put in the ark of the testimony, the first thing here. Well, what might Jesus say? Moses, I am the once for all atoning sacrifice for your sin paid at the cross. The cross is where my people will find mercy. And the cross defines love. Not that you love God, but that God loved you and sent me to be the propitiation for your sins. Believers will be justified by, by my grace as a gift through the redemption that's in me, the one that God put forward as a propitiation by my blood to be received by faith. And now you shall put up the screen. You should screen the ark with the veil. What might Jesus say? Well, this veil is going to be a barrier for hundreds of years, Moses. But it's not a concrete wall. It's made of fabric, and it's temporary. One day, it will be torn from top to bottom. And one, way, one day, people will see the way that I have made, the new and living way that I will open through the veil. That is through my flesh. Moses, I'm the great high priest over the house of God, and one day multitudes will draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Now, Moses, bring in the table and arrange it. Moses, the bread on this table points to me, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. And then you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps. What might Jesus say? Moses, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then bring in the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony. Moses, this is a sweet altar of prayer where your prayers of intercession will ascend to God's throne but I'm a better mediator because of my sacrifice and God's people will one day come boldly before the throne bringing their own petitions to me and I will always live to intercede for them. Next, Moses, set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. What might Jesus say? Moses, I am the door. Next, you shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle. What might Jesus say? Moses, I am going to put an end to all these sacrifices when I enter once for all into the holy places and not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by the means of my own blood. Thus I will secure an eternal redemption. My blood will purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then Moses, place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar 
and put water in it. What might Jesus say? You wash with water now to come into God's presence, but one day, Moses, I will wash my disciples' feet. And by washing their feet, I, it's a symbol of me making them clean. It's really my blood that will cleanse their conscience from sin. Moses, next you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. What might Jesus say? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Moses, that's why there's no back door. That's why there's no sneaking over the curtains. You have to come through me to the Father. Next, we anoint the furniture. God says, then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all of its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all of its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. What might Jesus say? Before I, the true tabernacle, went to the cross, Mary anointed my feet with perfume out of love and devotion, but not to make me holy. No, I'm completely holy, and the only way for you to be holy is to be in me, covered by my blood. Next, anoint the priests. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priests. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests. And their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. What might Jesus say? Moses, I am the Holy One who will anoint not only Aaron and his sons and his descendants, but will truly make all those who are in me a holy priesthood. For you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellence of excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And 2 Corinthians 1 tells us, it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Next, we see a repeated phrase eight times in uh, verses 16 through 33 of chapter 40. This Moses did according to all the Lord commanded, or as the Lord commanded. And so Moses finished the work. So it was finished, it was fragrant from all this anointing oil and the incense, but it was still not filled. The people had done everything that the Lord, the Lord had commanded. There was nothing more to be done but we don't know how long there is between verse 33 and verse 34. How long did they wait? We don't know. When would God come to dwell with them? And how would this happen? It was not by their confession of sin, although that was right to do. It was not by their repentance or their painstaking obedience, because we've seen that they had done all that the Lord had commanded them to do. 
It wasn't by praying the exact right words. There was an atoning sacrifice that needed to be made. And this pointed to Jesus, our once for all ultimate sacrifice. And then we read, finally, finally, the tabernacle was filled. The cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is that spectacular moment that we've been waiting for in all of Exodus. The glory of the Lord filled the tent. And so when the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was back. God was back dwelling with them again. But Houston, we have a problem, as NASA would say, right? What did we read here? Access was denied. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now the Hebrew word here for settled is shakan. It's translated in the ESV settled and in the NIV abode, or in the King James Version abode. The transliteration for this you might have heard of is Shekinah. Have you heard that? The Shekinah glory? The abiding presence of God. So the, the presence of God's glory was so overwhelmingly strong that Moses, the mediator who had met with the Lord on the mountain, was not able to enter the tabernacle. What a way to end the book of Exodus. <laughs> Were you, I mean, we're left rather hanging, right? It's like a cliffhanger. And can you imagine being a part of the congregation at that time? Okay, think for a minute. Put yourself in their sandals, all right? What would you be thinking at this point? Think about what they'd been through. God had delivered them from Egypt. He had redeemed them by the blood of the lamb. He had led them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness to Sinai, he had promised to dwell with them. He had made a covenant with them. Even though they had failed miserably, he renewed that covenant. If I were an Israelite, I think I would be pondering the reality of my sinfulness at this point. The utter holiness of God would be foremost in my heart and my mind. Nancy Guthrie wrote this. She said, everything about the tabernacle declare to the Israelites, no access, do not enter. If you were a man, you were only allowed in the courtyard. If you were a woman, you weren't even allowed in the courtyard. Only a few select priests ever served in the holy place during their lifetime. And even they were confronted with a curtain, a curtain that the Jewish Talmud says was four inches thick and took more than a hundred priests to move. Only one priest once a year went beyond that veil into the most holy place where God's presence dwelt. So as we stood outside the tabernacle complex or in its courtyard examining and thinking it through as we watched the priests carrying out their duties and wondered at the cloud of God's glory radiating from the most holy place, perhaps we would recognize that this was not all God intended when he said he would dwell with us. Perhaps we would grasp that it was only a shadow of a greater reality to come, greater access, 
a greater intimacy that God intended to share with his people. And perhaps as we stood on the side day after day, year after year, it would implant in our hearts a longing for God to fulfill his promise to send a better mediator, a better sacrifice, a true tabernacle in which we could have unfettered access to God. That was Nancy Guthrie from The Promised One. Number eight here, abiding guide. We come to the closing words of Exodus. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people, people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So the same cloud that kept Moses from entering the tent would abide with them, would guide them. The Lord had come to dwell with his people to assure them that he would lead them to the promised land. And so if you were to continue reading, you'd eventually come to 1 Samuel and discover that the glory that once dwelt in the tabernacle departed when the priests and the people sinned against the Lord and the ark was captured by their enemies. Do you remember that story? And the daughter-in-law of the high priest gave birth and she named the child Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed. Well, God's glory came once again to dwell uh, with his people when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings 8. But then once again, the glory departed when the people fell into sin. Now, when the angel Gabriel came to announce to Mary that she would be carrying the Messiah, he explained it to her like this. He said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And the word there means like a cloud. Okay, it's, a, it's like a cloud that's shadowing Mary. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the Holy Spirit came on Mary filled her womb with his gracious and glorious presence. Jesus, who, who the writer of Hebrews called the radiance of the glory of God, right? And then John writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So Exodus does leave us rather hanging. So are you eager to know the rest of the story? Well, you may want to keep reading. You may, may want to go on to the book of Leviticus. Right? The next three books of the Torah are Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they unpack the what and the how it looks for the people of Israel to serve the Lord in their freedom, their freedom from bondage and slavery. So Leviticus zeroes in on regulations for fellowship with God. Numbers goes on to record more of their wilderness journey, records their failure to trust God and his promises, and their wandering and their need to trust their faithful God. And then Deuteronomy expands then on the law, detailing what following God will look like once they cross the Jordan and they're into the promised land. And then Joshua tells the story of crossing over the Jordan and then finally entering the promised land. Now, we see Exodus thread 
throughout the Old Testament, and then eventually we see this thread of the Exodus in the life of Jesus. As we've seen, we've pointed out throughout the study, but I wanted to point out for you again how we see the Exodus in Jesus' life, okay? The people of Israel at Jesus' time were once again being oppressed by a foreign power. This time, it's the Romans. We also see faithful women. Do you remember the faithful women we saw back at the beginning of Exodus? All right, we see Mary and Elizabeth who fear the Lord and are faithful. We also see another evil king. This time it's King Herod who issues a command to kill all the baby boys that were born in Bethlehem. We also see signs in the sky. Not a cloud by day or a fire by night, but we see the stars that were leading the shepherds and the wise men to worship. We see Mary and Joseph who, through a dream, are told to escape from Bethlehem and go where? To Egypt. So they return when it's safe, and that fulfills the, God's prophecy that his son will come out of Egypt. And now we get to the Gospel of John. John describes Jesus as the word who became flesh, who dwelt among us. And that word, we have learned, means tabernacled. He tabernacled among us. So Jesus revealed God's glory to us. He's full of grace and truth, and he embodies the name of Yahweh. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days. They were in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus trusts in God's provision and strength. He quoted Deuteronomy every time the, you know, he needed to have uh, words to say there. And he does not fail like Israel. Jesus called disciples, just like Moses called his elders back in Exodus 18. Jesus goes up the mountain like Moses, and he preaches the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells us how our righteousness needs to exceed the law that was given to Moses. And then when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, he told of his exodus, his death and resurrection. And then before he ascended to the Father's right side, he promised to never leave them or forsake them just like this beautiful cloud was with the people of Israel throughout their journey. Now, the authors of a book called Echoes of Exodus wrote that the Gospel of John brings the Exodus theme to a crescendo. And I'm going to close by reading this. Jesus is the provider of wine for God's people so they can celebrate with him, behold him to eat and drink, like we saw back in Exodus 24. He is the preacher of the new birth through the waters and by the spirit and the bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness that whoever believes may have life. He is the fountain of living water in dry places. He heals those who have been weak and paralyzed, hopeless and lost, one man for 38 years, and he gives them rest. He provides the bread from heaven and he reveals his sovereignty over the waters. He is the prophet like Moses and the source of true spiritual food and drink. He is the light that leads Israel, the truth that liberates them from slavery, and the I am of the burning bush. He is the shepherd who leads his people and protects them. He turns Pharaoh's plagues on their heads, bringing fresh water to the thirsty, healing to those plagued with sickness, light in the darkness, life to the dead, and ultimately through his self-sacrifice as the king's firstborn son at Passover. He is the true tabernacle in whom we see what God truly looks like, 
the true mediator who prays that his people would be united in truth and holiness, the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Come, let us adore him. And that's exactly what we will do for all of eternity. We will not need the tabernacle or any of its furniture. No altars will be needed. We will be singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. No basins will be needed. We, we're described as those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. No table of bread is needed. We will be feasting at the marriage supper of the Lamb with the bread of life. So let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. No lampstand or oil will be needed. In fact, the new Jerusalem has no sun or moon to shine for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. God will be their light. They will reign forever and ever. There will, there will be no veil to separate us from God's presence or his face. No more distance or dimness. We will see his face and it will be his name that will be on our foreheads and we're going to be close enough to God that he will wipe away our tears and the voice from the throne will declare, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. May the glory of Jesus, as we've seen in Exodus, lead us all to worship. Will you pray with me? I'm going to pray from Psalm 108. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, not just in the tabernacle. Let it be over all the earth. How amazing it is that you have redeemed us for your glory. You descended in the cloud of glory, filling the tabernacle. Thank you that you sent Jesus to tabernacle to dwell among us. Show us glimpses of your glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. And Lord, as we behold your glory, may we burst with joyful praise, grip our souls with the promise that we will see you in all of your glory, for we will be with you where you are forever. And not only that, we shall be like you because we will see you as you really are. It's in Jesus' glorious and gracious name that we pray. Amen.